Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A hallucinatory cinematic fever dream, Dawson City, Frozen Time, tells the bizarre story of some 533 silent film reels dating back from 1910s to 1920s that accumulated at the end of the distribution line in northwestern Canada and were miraculously discovered 50 years later in 1978, buried in a subarctic swimming pool deep in the Yukon permafrost. Filmmaker Bill Morrison definitely combines excerpts from this remarkable collection with historical footage, photographs, and original interviews to explore the complicated history of Dawson City, a Canadian gold rush town founded across the river from a First Nation hunting camp, and traces how the development of that town both reflected and influenced the evolution of modern cinema. Dawson City Frozen Time is a triumphant work of art that spins the life cycle of a regular film collection into a breathtaking history of the 20th century. We're joined today by the writer, editor, and director of Dawson City Frozen Time, Bill Morrison. Bill Morrison, welcome to Film School Radio. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, This is a remarkable documentary film, and it's remarkable on a lot of different levels. Uh, The way that you approach the material, the way the story is told, the fact that this even exists, these films, and how the story behind it, the story of the 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 community and the, all of the things around it. Um, what was your? Let's go back to the origin story here. Where did you sort of learn about these the this amazing trove of film that existed, and how did that make its way into what we now know as Dawson City Frozen Time? So um, I get asked that question a lot, and I can't pinpoint when I was told about it, but it would have been in the eighties when I was still uh, attending art school at Cooper Union in New York. Uh, I think as I started to show an interest in archival footage and older footage, I can't remember who first told me about um, this story, but back in the 80s, it wasn't that long after this discovery. So it was sort of a a story that was in circulation, if you will. Um, It had been written about, Sam Kula had written about it, and um, and it was sort of well-known within archival circles. I was sort of shocked to discover that it hadn't really permeated much beyond those same archival circles and archival circles of a certain era. For instance, a young archivist wouldn't necessarily have heard about this story. So I always thought it would be a good story to tell. Um, I already had an interest in trying to tell stories about film collections using the film collection as they did with the film of her. And I thought I would one day do that uh, with Dawson City as well. And it just sort of uh, happened that um, I had an opportunity to do that when I was invited to go up to visit Ottawa. And um, Paul Gordon invited me there to show Jacasia. And then he also mentioned that he worked at Library and Archives Canada doing digital migration. And so uh, he invited me to his workplace. And I, of course, asked him if he had the Dawson City collection, which he did. And um, uh, from there, I realized that with their new 4K scanner, it would be possible to see more of the collection at better resolution than perhaps anyone ever had before. 
and that this was the perfect opportunity to try to tell this story the way I wanted to tell it. Kind of take a step back and describe this gold rush, this community, how it sort of popped up out of nowhere, and just a little bit about a background about what makes Dawson City so fascinating on so many different levels, but just a sort of a brief history of, of what happened in the late 1890s. Yeah, I mean, they say about Dawson City that it was a town with no past and no future. <laughs> um, and I think that's an apt description. Um, it, you know, it, they built a Old West frontier-style town um, at the site of this discovery of gold, and sort of in the tradition of um, the California gold rushers, Colorado silver rushes, these um, sort of Wild West frontier towns, the, the difference being it was in Canada. You know, a lot of Americans came up there, and um, sort of anybody who had any skin in the game uh, with the Wild West showbiz uh, made an appearance there in that summer of 1898. Upon arrival, it was almost like a, a stage. It had created itself in the image of a, a town and a history that was already 50 years old. We are now on the precipice of the 20th century. Uh, there was no frontier left. It was sort of already... It came into the world as sort of a nostalgic throwback of an earlier time of maybe two generations past. And it lived out that fantasy for a summer. And then uh, people got tired of it. It was uh, horrendous living conditions. The 40,000 or so who'd come seeking their fame and fortune in gold um, were largely disappointed. There, uh, luckily, there was a, another gold rush in Nome the following year, and so a lot of those gold seekers who hadn't found their fortune in Dawson made their way onto Nome for the Alaska Gold Rush. And uh, those who stayed created a rather wealthy uh, mining town in which quite a bit of gold was pulled out of the ground, especially in 1900 and 1901. Uh, those are still the records for gold harvest in, in the Klondike. And then some years after that, maybe 2019, Oh six or 1907, uh, the Guggenheims came in and uh, they brought the big dredges. And you know, as the once the railway system was in place, enormous machinery could be brought in, and people who would just pan for gold were forced out. Or the enormous gold mining industry took hold there, which became a corporate endeavor, and Dawson City became a company town, eventually a one-company town. In the process of population dwindled to maybe 3,000 in 1910 and then leveled to the current population of about 1,200 uh, maybe 10 years after that. So for right. the last 100 years, uh, Dawson City sustained about a, a wintertime population of, of 1,200. Of course, it, it booms with tourism in the summer. That, that, that's a short sketch that, of what happened. And, and what makes Dawson City frozen time so... Uh, another aspect of it that is so fascinating is we watch how this town, as you said, you know, just explodes onto the scene very quickly and then sort of disintegrates. But then there's sort of this second and third iteration of the town. So you can and one of the strengths of this this film is that you watch it's it's kind of a critique on capitalism. I don't think a kind of it is a critique of sort of greed, avarice capitalism in it's sort of on you know an accelerated rate but you see how 
the phases that might play out in a nation over decades, you know, perhaps even longer, are compressed into a maybe 15-year period of time where the gold rush, the sort of leveling anything and everybody in its way, including the indigenous people, to get to what they're trying to get to, they go away, this bust happens, and then you see the respectable community evolve, and you see more or less a community that is trying to find its way. What is its next iteration going to look like as a as a place where families can live and all the rest of it? So you, it's there's a lot of things in the first part of this film that are just incredibly illuminating for me and educational, and they, I just think they speak to a larger truth that we have as a country and as a world kind of are living through still. Um, is that a fair assessment of what I, what you what this film is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, uh, within a few years, the town sort of, like I said, it didn't have the history, so it kind of uh, fast-forwarded through an entire First Nation history and into the Industrial Revolution and uh, and ended up in the 20th century sort of, well, what was, you know, with this town that was sort of had these storefronts and, um, remembered past from from somebody else's fantasies of, of what the Wild West was and then had to sort of look around and say, okay, how are we going to actually survive here? There is money to be made here. Uh, how do we build a community? I think um, the challenges for Dawson City in some ways did reflect the nation as a whole or the, the continent as a whole. And then it had this very strange magnetism for adventurers. So yeah. people were continually making their way up there and those um, were the same type of people who ended up making their way to Hollywood. Um, a lot of the people who thought about uh, coming to Dawson City to seek their fame and fortune in uh, gold, uh, conversely said, well, how, how are we going to uh, parlay this into a, a Hollywood or a film career? Right. So there was this strange parallel between the development of cinema, uh, when you think about large-scale or cinema for of an audience being discovered in maybe 1895 and, or 1896, depending on where you want to place it, and then the gold being discovered in Dawson in 1896, there was this sort of parallel path that cinema and uh, the evolution of the town of Dawson City took, and uh, where they intersected and uh, inspired one another became um, sort of an inspiration for the film. That that's something I didn't realize until I I saw this film Dawson City Frozen Time was that was how many of the early stories that we saw Charlie Chaplin and other just sort of short silent films or long extended narrative uh, silent films was how they they really were tied into what was happening in Dawson City. I didn't realize until I saw this film how, how influential it was in the earliest parts of, of the, the filmmaking industry, which is just one other, just so many aspects to this film that are like that. And before, I want to ask you about how all these films ended up in Dawson City, but I first want to remind our listeners, as we're speaking with Bill Morrison, the writer, director, and editor of the film Dawson City, Frozen Time. It is out uh, now on release on Ovid or Ovid, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. Ovid TV. It is one of it's a wonderful site for a lot of very interesting and wonderful films. Ovid, so it's out now. It's being released uh, through them. You also have your own 
website, BillMorrisonFilm.com. So how did all these films end up in Dawson City? Let's let's yeah. kind so of that's a, Of all the strange twists and turns, um, uh, that is maybe one of the strangest ones. I mean, when Dawson became a viable city with electricity, it was perhaps one of the most far-flung distribution points on a, a long chain of, of film distribution stops. I think maybe even films, even once they landed in Dawson City, they could have gone out to mining camps in Mayo, but for all intents and purposes, Dawson City was the end of the line. Now, that's in itself not that unusual. I think if you found, if you trace distribution lines uh, around the world, New Zealand or Siberia or Chile, these far-flung places that had an outpost, scientific or mining, um, you'd probably find a collection of films. With Dawson City, because of the nature of the town, the town had to be built with wood. If you were to put concrete on the um, permafrost and then warm it up, uh, the foundation would crack. And so the foundations that had the most, the buildings that had the most pliability and flexibility were wood. And so the town was intrinsically combustible. And to introduce these nitrate rolls, wood wood heated and wood lit and, and oil lit buildings, you were introducing nitrate and film together. And uh, as the as the film points out, um, the business section of Dawson City burst in flames nine times in the first nine years of its existence. Um, not all of that was caused by the introduction of nitrate film, but it certainly didn't help. And there were recorded incidences of nitrate films uh, burning and burning down buildings in Dawson City, and I'm sure many more that weren't recorded in the newspapers. So it was a, a hazardous to have those uh, combustible reels around, and uh, as was the case of almost all the trash that accumulated in Dawson City uh, during the course of the year, the breakup of the ice on the Yukon River provided an opportunity for citizens to put their garbage and unwanted things on the ice flow as it broke up, and then it would wash downstream and out of sight and out of mind. God, that's and this so... went on for uh, decades. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, there was also recorded incidences of, uh, of the nitrate films being put out on the ice during the breakup, especially when talkies came in, um, and the silent films were uh, in... They were disposed of en masse, um, and also in large nitrate bonfires that were um, built, but were also somewhat dangerous. And then some were just stored in the basement of a uh, defunct library that became sort of a holding uh, pen or warehouse uh, for these films when when the, the theater owners weren't paying rental for them. Bank manager was in control of making sure that they weren't shown uh, beyond their rental period, and they would sit in cold storage in the basement of this library. Now, that same bank manager was also the treasurer for the Hockey League, and there came some changes in ownership where the Hockey League now owned the rink and the pool underneath it and quickly determined that they were more interested in maintaining a flat and level hockey rink than they were in also maintaining a year-round swimming pool that existed underneath the hockey rink and made the hockey rink less than a flat surface. Yeah. So once the uh, Hockey League owned that rink, 
they quickly moved to fill in that swimming pool. And they filled it in with whatever was handy. And, of course, it didn't take long for the bank manager to say, hey, why don't we take all those films out of cold storage and use that as landfill also, along with the chicken wire and curling pucks or whatever uh, was going into that swimming pool to fill it up. And so uh, a team of horses was hired, and they carted thousands of rolls into that swimming pool, thinking they were they would dissolve and would out of sight and out of mind, and maybe a little more environmentally uh, conscientious than just putting them on the ice flows. And there they sat, um, incredibly a that theater under which they they sat burnt down to the ground from a nitrate fire. Um, some years after, maybe ten years after. And the films themselves were safely in Wisconsin uh, permafrost underneath, including a film uh, of a film fire of a film studio that Alex Guy Blachet uh, started uh, some hundred years ago. For, and, in Fort Lee, uh, in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah, that, that was yeah, so, what an amazing uh, career. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, an amazing career, and the irony that her studio was depicted on fire on a nitrate film. Yeah while a nitrate fire raged above the ground under which it was buried. Remarkable coincidences. Uh, These films sat there for 49 years until a construction project in 1978 unearthed them, and uh, people quickly determined uh, that they were old, that they were nitrate, and uh, they were perhaps worth preserving. And uh, Kathy Gates, who was the director of the museum and, took all the wonderful photographs of the excavation of these rolls, uh, also was an editor for a newsletter called the Klondike Corner, and she put an open letter um, to anyone who might have any clue about how those rolls got there, and indeed that same bank manager wrote in and said, that was me, I put them in there wow. 49 years ago. Uh, it is, again, it's hard to convey to uh, the audience just how remarkable the story is, the the sort of the backstory behind how you came to know about this, how these films ended up where they are. It, it is. It, just on that level alone, and as a sort of piece of history, understanding all of the things that happened, but it's the way in which you put this film together. Uh, the editing involved in this and in, in, in telling the story through these silent films and through the photographs and through the home films and home um, photographs that you were able to pull together. It is a film that is beautiful to look at. It is sad to watch all of the work of these artists who uh, some of which these films will, this was it for some of the films and these some of these filmmakers uh, some is lost forever, and I, I just, I absolutely, it's, it's the way you told the story, and it's a con, uh, contemplative film. It is a film that will, at times, break your heart, and other times you'll feel kind of liberated, knowing that this will never be lost now. That because of your efforts <laughs> and the efforts of others, that these, some of the work is as degraded as some of it might be. You can see how early filmmaking we we sometimes scoff at now because it's silent film and it's a different kind of whole different acting vibe to all the things around it, but it's still very beautiful to look at and, and, and you can feel the emotion, which is another thing about watching these silent films, how good they were at telling the stories that they set out to tell. 
it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience to see uh, Dawson City Frozen Time. It really is. Thank you. I mean, uh, you you touched on the narrative filmmaking, and some of it is really remarkable, especially you know in the hands of a director like Todd Browning. Um, but I was really also fascinated with all the newsreel footage and these little yeah. moments of history a hundred years ago that were uh, captured and depicted, and sort of uh, trying to understand how different we were back then, but also in some ways how these were the seeds of who we became and, and who we already were, and uh, and that you know these people were recognizable as as us, you know. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. I'm I'm I'm. So happy that we were able to talk about this film. Again, I want to let people know that Dawson City Frozen Time is all now available on Ovid, O-V-I-D dot TV. Uh, you can check it out there. There are other platforms, but check out Ovid because there's a lot going on there and in the and what they're trying to do, uh, pulling a, a number of different distributors together with all of these incredible films in a way that is accessible and easy to uh, navigate and a very minimal amount of money per month, you get access to some remarkable work, including the work of Bill Morrison um, and in this film as well. So, and also, as we said earlier, you can find out more about his work, Bill Morrison's work, by going to BillMorrisonFilm.com. And anything else, Bill, that we should sort of touch on in terms of the Where is Dawson City Now? I was one of the first films uh, that was... Uh, of the 21st century that was brought into the uh, Library of Congress Film Registry. In fact, I think... Oh, it was... no, we're not there yet with Dawson City oh, because th- it hasn't been out 15 years yet, but Decacia was I'm... in the National Film Registry. Thank you. Thank you. I apologize. Decacia, absolutely, there it is. In 21st century, the first film brought into the Library of Congress National Film Registry. Well, Bill... Uh, thank you. I, I don't know where you are on your on any new work, but uh, I would be honored to have uh, to have a conversation with you about that because I I've got to believe it's going to be pretty darn wonderful stuff. So anytime. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. When we hang up, I'm going to get back to work. All right. OK, <laughs> excellent. The film is Dawson City uh, Frozen Time. And we've been speaking with writer, director and editor Bill Morrison. Thanks very much, Bill. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.